fungi are incredibly diverse. They're amazing. Anytime I learn something more about them, my head explodes again. Do you know this feeling? Yeah, so do I. And I know I'm not alone in considering myself a fairly competent nature nerd, and yet, fungi, you mysterious life forms with your bizarre shapes, full range of fragrances, textures, and colors, bioluminescence, invisible networks with the power to nourish or demolish or both. Botany professor Maria Moro is fascinated by fungi and loves helping others see and understand the details of their mysterious ways. She is like a fungal private eye with a knack for finding clues to piece together the mushroom mystery of a spot. She joined me for a stroll through the redwoods on a pretty dry September afternoon to see what fungi stories we could find unfolding. Tiny ones, it turned out. The leading suspects were three species of litter decay specialists, thread-like mushrooms with very similar caps emerging from individual fallen redwood needles. We found these along a trail next to my home that I walk almost daily, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that, well, I never noticed them before. I sat down with Maria around our fire ring, unlit because, you know, even in the redwood forest, it's been a darn crispy stretch with a strout, and I asked her, why mushrooms? Why you? Her answer was not what I expected. Baking, Easter egg hunts, a candy shop, and forest pathology? But it did make me appreciate her and the way she shares her expertise even more. Welcome to the Backcountry Beat, the podcast about nature, adventure, and stewardship from Backcountry Press, streaming to you from a redwood forest in Humboldt County, California. Why mushrooms? Why you? Gosh, so I was a baker. Really? Yeah. And I went to school for science, and then I was like, no, I'm going to do art instead. But I wanted to do both, and then I wasn't allowed to because I had too many credits. And so then I just dropped out because I did not want to have to decide. And then I started baking. But I've been baking since I was like five. My sister and I had like our own little pie business when we were kids. Um, And it was like, I don't know. We were kind of just raised by ourselves. And to deal with that, we baked. And so, yeah, I started baking because that's like science meets art. Um, Formulas all the way, right? Yeah. You're, You're experimenting. You're following a, you know, experimental design you're figuring out why your results don't look as they should and then you try again but in the end you have this beautiful project and then or product I think part of the satisfaction of science too is like at least for me having this like pile of things that all kind of look the same at the end where you kind of like have done it a bunch of times and you have this beautiful organized result so I think that was really fun about baking too is that it was a lot like you know filling up your petri plates and inoculating them with something and then having them all at the end that you could look at the tangible part totally yeah and i don't know organized and like how in chemistry you have glassware and you get to make things that are different colors it's just all very beautiful and so baking did that for me without having to be in school and make compromises and then i opened my own bakery and that was really fun it was like a candy shop a candy shop named curio confections And then I did that for a year, and then I closed it and was like, I have to go be outside now (laughs) because I've been inside for so long that I was going a little crazy. And so I took a trail work job in Oregon, and we were 
working in like really big old forests back in the wilderness where we'd have to like hike in a big old cross cut and all of our tools and there'd be just enormous trees across the trail and you know for some of those we could get it but sometimes it was just like wow this is a pile of four foot diameter trees that nobody nobody's coming back here so we couldn't get those but anyway in some of those there was just like huge conks on the trees and I grew up with mushrooms everywhere but I never noticed. Maria spent her childhood just outside Seattle. And I had a few people from the Midwest on my team and they are just very, they're fungophiles. Fungophile. A person who likes to collect, cook, or eat wild mushrooms. Synonym, mycophile. A mushroom enthusiast. So they were talking about all the mushrooms, what they were, what they were doing, uh, and that just kind of blew my mind a little bit. We did a little morel hunting, learned what those were, but I think the biggest like interest point for me, and this wasn't about fungi necessarily, but we came upon this one forest and it was just all dead. All of the trees were dead and the whole trail was just dead tree after dead tree after dead tree for so long that we went home that day to go get more tools and come back but then some, somebody on a mountain bike had like come into the wilderness with a chainsaw and done half of our work for us, which was interesting. By interesting, Maria means chainsaws are illegal to use in wilderness areas. So yeah, please don't do that. But I was just like blown away, like, well, what causes this? So I looked it up on the internet <laughs> and um, it was talking about bark beetles and drought and pathogens and just like this complex network of stuff that was collaborating to sometimes kill a whole forest and I don't know why but I, I don't know I feel like a I really like detective type things so that made me feel like oh cool I could be a detective outside and do science uh, and kind of explore this and my sister had recently moved to Humboldt not recently three years ago she'd moved to Humboldt but I kept thinking she'd come back so it was kind of like dawning on me that she had actually moved here and so I was looking up forest pathology classes. Humboldt State is one of the only places with a forest pathology class. So I signed up, started school again, and it turns out that forest pathology at Humboldt State is a mycology class. <laughs> so I learned all about fungi and I was just, that was it for me. <laughs> so wait, baking to mycology, connect the dots for me here. But I don't know, I don't think it's the baking aspect that like, I think is super interesting or connects me to fungi but like as a kid I love to do scavenger hunts, easter egg hunts, any kind of puzzle solving and I think that's the like itch that it scratches for me. It's such a puzzle. I love that because when we were just walking along the trail I really felt like we were on a treasure hunt for yes. fungal signs. Yeah. And wow you were really picking up on some small details there. I was like Maria's eyes trained right now. But not for like big mushroom. Like I'll sometimes be the last person to see the big mushroom, but I'm like looking around for like, a, I don't know, anything that's different. But for some reason, yeah, sometimes the really obvious stuff I miss completely. <laughs> so in terms of this mushroom class that is coming up soon, is that one of the takeaways that you're hoping people will carry with them from the class is like training their eye for clues. Yes, absolutely. And well put. That's like 100% the goal in my mind. And I'm sure Christian has his goals. Maria is co-teaching this class with Christian Schwarz, research associate with the Norris Center for Natural History at UC Santa Cruz, fungophile, 
and co-author of one of my favorite books, Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast. Well, I won't speak for Christian schools, but mine are definitely that people will learn to like look at stuff differently, right? And to notice, especially for me, like the right now I'm really into the, the smallest of the small in the mushrooms. We've been looking at all these tiny litter decay specialists and that kind of stuff is just like, it's everywhere. And once you start thinking about, or you notice that they're there and then you start thinking about what they're doing and you start thinking about how they're doing it. And then you start thinking about where they are when you don't see them, because a lot of times you don't see fungi. And then you start thinking about everything that's happening all the time that you don't see. And so you start looking for those clues. Like, how would I know that a fungus was here or have some evidence of what it's doing if I, if I can't see it because they're so ephemeral? So you start looking for like differences in the colors and the leaves or differences in the shape of something or, um, I don't know, just little tiny differences. And I do hope that that's what people take away is just the ability to notice more and to have that be inspiring for their curiosity. I asked Maria what is surely on everyone's mind. How excited are you for fall rains in the flush of mushrooms that will hopefully soon be blanketing our forests, pushing up mounds of duff from here to the horizon? Oh gosh, I'm excited. I'm nervous and like making sure I make enough time to get out there and see everything. And I mean, you can never see everything, right? And it's always like, it's a gift. You get to go out and do it. And you know, there's always something, even when it's dry, even when it's been a crappy year, there's always something. And even sometimes crappy years will select for something that you don't see in a good year, because maybe it's a bad competitor or it requires this weird combination of timing and temperature that is abnormal. Um, so any year is, is a fun year for mushrooms, but uh, yeah, sometimes the most plentiful ones are even a little bit stressful because I get a little bit of FOMO. Like I should be out there right now, but I have to do all this grading. Why am I grading right now? So, and I'm excited to like learn more, to find things I haven't found, to remember the multitude of species that I've forgotten even exist. Um, I had intended to go out mushrooming a lot this summer and went like zero times. So I don't know. We'll see. I have hopes and dreams. <laughs> Do you have a favorite mushroom? Ooh, that's tough. Um, I used to have a favorite mushroom and that was, um, this root disease pathogen called heterobasidion and it used to be heterobasidion inosum but now it's like five different species um, we have heterobasidion occidentali here on the coast um, and so it attacks living trees conifers it's pretty devastating um, like in a plantation system or in a forest that's like mostly spruce like um, European forests have a lot of trouble with heterobasidion because it'll just you know knock out a whole forest just moving outward taking stuff down it's not a huge deal for us here we have I don't know pretty good mix of conifers in most of our forests um, yeah it's just always like surprising it's devastating it's just I found it on an apple tree once like what are you doing in an apple tree you're a conifer root pathogen you're not supposed to grow on this it also grows on redwood I don't know if it grows on living redwood we think it might um, but you can find them on um, like decaying redwood stumps. And it kind of grows in this way where it's like the way it's rotting the wood is the way it would rot the wood if it was in the stump before it was cut. So yeah, that one used to be my favorite. But now it's like pff, old hat. 
started learning about waxy caps and hygrosabes and gliophorus and all these beautiful tiny shiny gems in the forest and that's like where I'm at right now and that one that's like ooh, really when you get that Easter egg hunt type of feeling and they're in the spring often so it's like one of your like later season just reinvigorates you and really leaves you with something when the mushrooms then kind of go away for the summer just like full of awe they're so cool we are pretty excited to be offering a five-part webinar series with Maria and Christian this fall. It's called Forest Mushrooms of the Pacific Coast, and it offers a comprehensive look at forest mushrooms of California and the Pacific Northwest for nature enthusiasts. So what exactly does that mean, and what will participants get out of this class? We're going to try to inspire curiosity, and we're going to try to give you some foundation to make your own explorations, right? We'll tell you everything... Well, we'll tell you some of the gems of stuff that we think is just so cool, and we'll try to give you a strong foundation to build on. But fungi are incredibly diverse. They're amazing. Anytime I learn something more about them, my head explodes again. So we can't tell you everything, but we're going to start out just talking about what even is a fungus, because a lot of people don't know. They didn't get separated out from Kingdom Planty until we landed on the moon. So we are still in this sort of early romantic phase with fungi where we're learning so much we're constantly changing our whole catalog of what we know about them so we'll start out just you know what is a fungus why do they grow like they do and why are they shaped like they are and what is a mushroom with respect to a fungus and why do fungi make mushrooms and why do mushrooms look the way that they, that they do so we'll look at that sort of kind of basic biology what are fungi doing and um, how does their kind of form inform their function? And then we'll get into ecology. What are they doing out there? Where can we find them? When we do find them in those places, um, what are they eating? How are they interacting with other organisms? We'll look at some specific habitats uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So if you're you know, in a spruce and redwood coastal forest, what type of fungi might you expect to find? What are they doing in that forest? Um, we'll look at a variety of different habitats that you might encounter in your travels up and down the Pacific Northwest Coast. And then we're going to transition into, um, I think the next segment is, gosh, identification? Do we have like a chunk of identification? Where we, we do. Look at, yeah, specific groups of fungi. And this is really where Christian is gonna shine. I go out in the woods with him and just like basically learn I don't know, um, that type of knowledge that you can't get from anything except for just being next to an expert who just understands something to a beautiful degree. So anytime I go out with him, I learn like something I never would have thought to look for or something, I don't know. He, and he'll probe it out of you too. He'll like ask you questions to get you to the point where you're like, oh, that's the feature. And this is very nervous making because I'm like, I, I feel like I'm a person who's supposed to know a lot about fungi, but I always kind of feel like a little kid, like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so he'll be doing most of our identification segment and I'm pretty excited for that because I'm sure I will learn some stuff. Um, so we'll look at different groups of fungi and you know, how do you tell a rushula apart from an agaricus, apart from a bolete? And we'll look at some of the, the major ones that you're likely to run into and this sort of set of ID features that you can use to then be a forest detective figure out what it is and a lot of that is not just like knowing the names 
because the names are going to change most likely for a lot of the things that you could learn now. Um, but it's knowing what to look for and how to document that stuff. And then how to interact with your mycology community to figure out what something is and have a record that can be used by anybody in the community, including scientists, to figure out what that thing is doing. Um, and this is part of like the last lecture too, is or the last segment is learning what we can figure out from these community science platforms. And in particular, we're going to talk about iNaturalist, um, which is looking at like how do we figure out the range of a particular fungus. This is information we don't know. This is like basic information that is available for most organisms. We know the range of birds. We know the range of a lot of different mammals. We know the range of a lot of different plants. We have no, no idea on the range of most fungi. We don't know a lot of fungi that are potentially invasive. We don't know a lot of fungi that are potentially going extinct. We don't know anything. I mean, we know a lot, but it feels like we don't know anything when you think about how much is available in other realms of science. So that'll be the kind of closer is looking at everything we don't know. And the one thing I didn't mention, which is in between identification and everything we don't know, is forest pathology. And that'll be mostly me. Um, so I will be talking about complex interactions between not just fungi, but fungi and trees and our soil communities that are you know beyond fungi. We'll look at potentially a story about woodpeckers and how they rely on a particular type of fungus. Um, just those, those beautiful, complex interactions that are forest pathology. And you'll find that I am highly um, on the side of diseases as far as um, really important drivers of diversity and evolution and kind of the variety of stuff that we see around us often is driven by the existence of pathogens and disease. And they are also a wonderful part of that biodiversity. So I'll probably approach it from that point of view, which hopefully won't be too hard in the light of our current disease predicament that we are facing. <laughs> um, and hopefully people will be interested because I'm definitely going to talk about rot, which will, I'm hoping, blow everyone's mind as it did mine when I first figured out that rot could be used as sort of a detective tool to figure out what kind of fungi were in the woods with you. Well, um, I feel like mushrooms and mycology just since the dawn of time has been just cloaked in mystery in one way or another. And what puts it over the top for me is really mushrooms on Mars? <laughs> okay, so this is not something I know the most about, but I did see that paper. And I think that the kind of consensus of smart people that I saw talking about it, which again, this is like not a conclusion that is published or anything, but minds that I saw and respect were kind of concluding that it was likely um, like uh, kind of chemical formations just um, causing like crystalline structures or like these rounded shapes um, just from conditions that can cause, you know, minerals to do weird things. Okay, so not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. But okay. if something were to go and be our sort of starting terraforming of Mars, fungi might be involved in that process. But fungi have to eat something, right? They're heterotrophs. So if there were mushrooms on Mars, I would want to know what they were eating, right? We would need other life forms there that 
they could be getting energy from because that's part of what separates fungi from plants is that fungi have to get their food from other organisms whereas plants can make their own so if that fungi has a teammate that's like a algae or cyanobacteria then I would be on board with thinking that there might be some fungi out there but they gotta have somebody who's giving them some food so that they can then work their magic so looking forward to the class Maria thanks for chatting with me me too I'm very nervous and very excited I'm Alison Poplimba from Backcountry Press. Thanks for inviting Maria and I into your audio landscape. We hope you've enjoyed our second episode of the Backcountry Beat. You can subscribe wherever you're listening to this if you'd like to catch the next one. And if you'd like to participate in Forest Mushrooms of the Pacific Coast, you can sign up over at our website, backcountrypress.com. Recordings will be available if you can't make the live sessions, which will air five Tuesday evenings from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Time. October 19 through November 16. See you there.